Good evening, everybody. It's Inappropriate Characters. Hello and welcome. This is the RPG Pundit, the final boss in Internet Shitlords. And today I'm I'm with, as usual, Grim Jim and Venger. And we're, we're, uh, we're coming to you live. And we're going to be talking about a number of topics today. Mostly gaming, but a few that aren't. Yep. <laughs> off talk about dice because uh, specifically, I think that the uh, there's been kind of a craze of, of of increasingly weird, rare, whatever you know, production of dice. A lot of companies are making. Uh, I think there's been some kickstarters that have generated ridiculous amounts of money for dice, and you know, gamers have always been obsessed with dice, but uh, I think that that here with the fifth edition era you could say there's been like a level of obsession with dice that i'm i'm starting to find a bit weird but uh this is venger's topic really so we're gonna hand it over to him and he'll explain his particular beef with this subject go ahead venger okay um i don't know if it's so much of a, a beef oh by the way um my throat may be kind of scratchy hopefully that's not irritating to the people listening um I don't know if I started coming down with something. I don't have any other symptoms, but my voice is just kind of weird. So I don't know if it's a beef, but it's just like a curiosity. I mean, sometimes in my weaker moments where I'm like, $2 million Kickstarter, why not me? Um, I'm frustrated and, and you know jealous. But most of the time, I'm just like, that's so bizarre to me. I mean, I love dice too. I've got like... I don't know, probably a couple hundred in my house somewhere. But if you want a money-making Kickstarter that pretty much can't fail, um, yeah, go into the dice business. Uh, so I think this is the, the top-grossing role-playing game-related Kickstarter, this Dispel Dice. Uh, actually has six hours left to go, ironically. It's got, these are a lot of numbers, so bear with me. Uh, 19,767 backers. You probably were thinking like the money, but no. So the, the total of the money that's come in so far is 2,353,282. So well, it just went up like a hundred bucks just in the time that after I said that, uh, it's crazy. I mean, yeah, they're nice looking. Uh, they got cool names like Amethyst, Galaxy, Jewel, Nebula, Inferno, <laughs> Phantasm, you know, like really cool. That, you know, I, I wish I would have thought of that, some of those names. But um, why? Why are people going nuts? So, so if you want one set of dice, it's $48. I mean, you can get some nice looking dice down the street at your local game store for like 10 bucks yeah it's not i mean i know there's a market out there for it and in my weaker moments i'm like oh yeah i need some 50 dollars dice too because those look pretty boss but it's not just me or like a handful of people it's almost twenty thousand people out there that are you know shelling out for these luxury dice it's crazy and on twitter all you have to do is show people the dice that you made doesn't matter if they're beautiful or shitty or lopsided or what you will get like 
200 likes and 100 retweets and a bunch of comments, and then you will be a Twitter superstar in no time. I see it all the time. I'm like, I want a piece of action. Like, what's up? So, yeah, I'm just kind of flabbergasted. I'm not sure what's going on. But, uh, yeah, it's good to be in the dice business. (laughs) So... So let's establish a couple of basic points here. First of all, no gamer really needs more than one dice set. And a DM probably doesn't need more than three or four dice sets, let's say. But pretty much every gamer I know has way more dice sets than that if they're at all serious gamers. So this is, in, on the one hand, this is something that has always been true in the hobby, I think. People like to collect dice. And, you know, it's understandable in a way. You know, they're, they're um, an important feature of the hobby. Now, on the other hand, this seems like insane to me that there would be such a level of obsession with with fancy looking dice or with weird looking dice that that you get these massive kickstarts. Like I think before this, the biggest kickstart, if I'm not mistaken, related to gaming had to do with uh, miniatures. And at least with miniatures, it makes a certain type of sense because if you're if you're the type of gamer that collects minis, I'm not. But but if you are then, uh, you know, I can understand that because you're going to be collecting different minis, right? But but with the dice sets, it's not like they're different types of dice. They haven't invented the D48 or something like that, right? And unless you're talking about the DCC dice that Goodman Games has. But One every other... Like D69. <laughs> yeah, it's all, just, <laughs> it's all just the standard set, right? The D10s, the D4, D6, D12, D20, D8. Um and for some reason, this is huge, huge business. Now, somebody in our comments pointed something out here, which is, I think, the deeper issue. Dracopol said, companies are making more money from fashion accessories than from putting effort into actual games. And this is a problem for the hobby, right? I've talked in some of my earlier videos on my channel, the RPG Pundit. You guys should all go and subscribe if you haven't. Um, there's a video where I put out that basically... Uh, Wizards of the Coast and kind of the, the modern, well, really it's, it's mainly Wizards who are the, the, the modern corporate interest in gaming, has a vested interest in changing gaming from a hobby to a lifestyle. And when people are showing off their dice on Twitter, as Venture pointed out, and you're absolutely right, I've seen the same thing. You do a search for the hashtag D&D and a huge percentage of the posts you're going to see at any time, and especially the top posts, are people showing off their dice or dice sellers trying to show off their latest fancy-looking dice, right? Yeah, um, and the T-shirts and, and dice bags and... Yeah, yeah, the accessories in general, but dice being one of the major ones. But uh, this is this is not different than what you see in other lifestyle functions, right? Like if you look at, I don't know, hip-hop, a lot of the posts in social media are going to be about hip-hop clothing, hip-hop accessories, bling, etc., stuff that tells people when you show this that you're a part of the lifestyle, right? And you're getting social credit among your uh, subculture for having that lifestyle. And uh, this is a big problem because it means that the the emphasis is is going away from actually playing the game. I mean, I'm fairly convinced that there's quite a lot of people on Twitter, for example, who don't regularly play D&D 5th edition, but they'll show off their dice, they'll show off a painting, the picture that they that they made or commissioned of some character they rolled up but haven't ever actually played. In fact, I've seen posts that say, oh, this is my 
dragonborn lizard mage boy that I've that I've drawn, and he's you know uh, gender neutral, and uh, I haven't actually played him yet, but this is a drawing I paid to make of him, right? Um, uh, like so, th this is allowing an in an infusion of people to get influence in the hobby, uh, which is being transformed into a lifestyle without actually having to have the rep of being actual gamers. <laughs> I don't know what you think, Grim. I think gamers have always had a dice fetish. If you go way back to the oldest copies of Dragon Magazine that I can I can think of, there was always game science going on about how accurate and mathematically perfect their their dice were, and there were people selling weird dice like D30s and books of tables to go with the the D30. Certainly, I I'm guilty of being a bit of a dice fetishist, but I think I would balk at spending fifty bucks <laughs> on a set of dice. That's a bit much for me. It's crazy, um, but you know, different ones have become sort of fashionable at different times. There was um, that spate of metal dice uh, that were really yeah. sort of heavy and dense that everyone was into, and then stone or semi-precious dice. You can now pick up metal dice off somewhere like Wish dot com for you know a fifth of what they're charging for these ones. Um, and if you're after some pretty cool cool dice on the, on the cheap and you don't mind waiting, I would certainly recommend going and looking there they've got metal ones glow-in-the-dark ones blood-stained ones yeah it's all it's all cool then games started coming out with sets of dice that were themed for the game so vampire the masquerade had a um, green marble set mage had a had a purple set seemed like every game that came out had a thematic set of dice and that's that's continued and i guess the next outgrowth of that is these um Dice that are specifically keyed to the game. Fantasy Flight Games is very big on that. You know, they've got weird symbols and stuff on them rather than just being dice, which I think is a bit shitty, <laughs> but that's me. But yeah, I've I've bought dice at conventions or shows or game launches and things the same way you might buy a band T-shirt when you go to a gig or something. It's something to remember it by, you know? But I think that, that fetishization of dice and... Um, even the degree of what you might call dice animism has always been part of the hobby. It's just, it's got to this higher level, I think, because people have more disposable income. And with a dice, you know what you're getting from, from the get-go. With a game book and the development problems that can exist there, you don't necessarily know what you're going to get at the end. So maybe that's why dice are such a big thing. Yeah. Dave Pettit in our in our live chat pointed out the exact same thing happened with the punk scene back in the day. As someone who was in the punk scene back in the day, I, I totally agree with you, Dave. And yeah. in fact, it happened ridic from ridiculously early in the punk scene, right? Like the um, you saw this by uh, maybe even the late 70s. I don't know. I wasn't quite in the punk scene at that time, but but um, where you had people dressing up in these ridiculous fashions, their hair and, you know, the mohawks and all that sort of thing. That that you didn't actually see in the bands or in the gigs, right? This is this is people that were dressing up in this kind of lifestyle look of of what television presented punks as, you know, as how they looked, right? And yeah. and of course, this had a very interesting effect. And I wonder if this isn't something that's also going to happen in gaming, which was that the people that were real punks, right, like the ones that were into it 
for the music and for the movement and for the uh, for the for the gigs, you know, they they would immediately be able to spot these posers, and and you would you know there was this um, kind of uh, purity testing going on where you if you saw someone that was dressing up in these really fancy designer yet supposedly punk clothes, you knew right away they were a poser, and uh, I think maybe we're going to start seeing some of that in the in in the gaming world where you'll you'll end up having people that are you know uh, presenting themselves as lifestyle gamers that are going to end up eating some shit from from people who actually game <laughs> that that was kind of weird about punk though because when it started it was all very diy you know safety pins and stitch your own clothes and make something out of bin bags or, or whatever um and then sort of malcolm mclaren happened and i'll make myself unpopular here but the sex pistols for all that I quite like them, were a boy band, really, when, when you think about it. So does that mean Critical Maybe Role? Maybe the greatest or, boy band ever, but you're probably yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, but does that mean Critical Role are the Sex Pistols and Matt Mercer is Malcolm McLaren? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very good analogy, actually, is that these uh, these people that are lifestyle gamers, they don't game, but they'll watch these very professionally made shows that are completely ersatz, of people supposedly gaming, right? And, and so, like, <laughs> you, you get this um, th- this ridiculous element of, of of people that haven't actually gamed at all, but that are that are feeling like they're part of the scene. You know, does that mean that the end is nigh for true punks like us? <laughs> well, I don't think so, because if you see in, for example, in the punk movement uh, in the you know as, as the musical movement it kept kind of reinventing itself in different ways over time now there are some real grognard punks i guess that say no no punk is dead right anything anything after 1977 is not real punk or something like that but i mean um what you see happening consistently is that you get some kind of um new element to punk that shows up and it it's really genuine and then it kind of sells out and i was like i saw green day performing and this is going to sound really weird to anyone who's like sort of a a punk today because green day are like the biggest fucking sellouts right but but when i saw them they they nobody knew who they were yet right like they hadn't or they had they were they were either just about to or had only just released the dookie album right and so like no one knew them and they were they were like totally genuine and it was it was fantastic right and then very quickly they turned into complete corporate sellouts but but uh (laughs) You know, you're, I think that that what'll happen is that inevitably the the fad of just like the the fad of punk or subsequent movements related to punk um, inevitably die out, and then you get this this return to something more genuine. Uh, I think we're going to see the same thing here. You know, and and in some ways, I think this this ties into our second subject of the night, which is taking a look at D and D fifth edition and how. Fifth edition is is creating its own kind of little bubble, even in even in the area of actual gaming product, in the form of stuff like the DMs Guild. Um, Venger was very curious about this question of is the DMs Guild basically a gaming ghetto? So kick us off with that, Grim. Yeah. So D and D has always been its own thing. It's been kind of like the the Hoover or the Kleenex of gaming right it's it's the brand that's synonymous with with the pastime 
So it has always been kind of difficult to make people aware of the of the wider, broader gaming world. And unfortunately, it's it's been my sort of feeling, but it's very hard to get any sort of hard statistics on this. I was I was trying <laughs> earlier in the lead up to the show, as my co-hosts will attest. Um, it's it's really hard to drill down to the data and see whether there is any crossover. But my my instinct is that the success of fifth edition is not bleeding over into into the greater sort of role-playing ecosystem um i don't know when did the dm's guild actually start when was that launched is it two years ago yeah i think two years ago a bit under i think but just around yeah yeah so in all that time because uh, the dm's guild is part of the same set of sites that's all under one bookshelf right so um in all the time that the dm's guild has been up i've sold five products (laughs) through the dms guild and you do seem to still seem to get sort of cross-site recommendations and so on but i've sold hundreds and hundreds and hundreds um through through the other sites i got some stuff on the on the war game sub site they've got and i got some stuff on the on the um, well it's just drive through now it used to be rpg now so there just doesn't seem to be that crossover there and that's that's concerning me um, I'm going to show my age a bit here, but uh, here in the UK, we used to have a much more broad role-playing culture than I think America did, and part of this was down to the ubiquity of Games Workshop. There was a Games Workshop store in pretty much every market town across the UK, and certainly every city had at least one. But at that time, prior to 1990, they didn't just sell games workshop products they didn't just sell citadel miniatures and and warhammer they had plenty of role-playing games in there as well 1990 that all changed the accountants took control of games workshop and white dwarf magazine stopped being a general gaming magazine it became a, a monthly catalog for just games workshop products and that really did a lot of damage to the broader hobby here in the uk um suddenly you weren't being exposed to all these other games there wasn't a convenient place to go and shop and and to find them and to encounter them the staff in the stores became hostile to anyone who talked about other games i'm not kidding it got that bad and so the role-playing hobby kind of got shoved underneath wargaming for for decades and i'm worried again that sort of in the in the dying days of AD&D, there was this blossoming of other rpgs and an awareness of other games and that that genie seems to be forced back into the bottle quite a bit and there, there just doesn't seem to be this greater awareness of the hobby that should normally historically piggyback on the success of something like like dnd and it's 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 anecdotal but you know from what little data i can get that does seem to be what's happening the success isn't translating so much and that worries me well benger you're also a publisher so i'll I'll pass the floor to you before i say anything to see what you think okay well yeah well what grim said makes a lot of sense um but like we were talking about the the dispel dice kickstarter and how that's making mega bucks there are a lot of other gaming Kickstarters that focus on 
gaming books, either their own role-playing game system or, um, you know, source books for, for other games. And a lot of those do really, really well too. Um, you know, it's not unheard of to see 50,000, 75,000, 150,000 for some pretty much brand new game that nobody's ever heard of. They're just the right place at the right time, the right elevator pitch, maybe some great artwork. And, uh, I don't know. The lightning strikes and it's huge. And people buy. I don't know after that if people play the game or maybe they play it and they try it and then they go back to D&D or they do something else. Um, so I don't know. Um, I don't know if there's a lot of playing uh, all these different games, but I know that a lot of money is being made outside of D&D. And I think we're all doing fairly decent um, with like PDFs and print on demand and things like that. So even though it still seems to be all about D&D, I think that there may be some trickle down effect because um, role playing game just, just seems to be big right now. Um, and even though people aren't, laser focused on non D and D games and gaming. Uh, I think, I think it is helping everybody else uh, to a lesser degree, of course. Uh, so I'm encouraged, uh, but you know, I don't want to go overboard. I, I think D and D is still, you know, the main force, um, but we're not out of this yet. So. Well, Benger, when you did uh Chalt, which is your newest product, uh, you, I, I remember that you made some effort to try to suggest that it is, uh, you know, a setting usable in 5e, that it's 5e compatible, etc. You've now sent me a review copy of the book. My, I'll be doing a review video of it sometime soon. And uh, you've kind of got some of the stylistic elements of 5th edition there. And uh, I, I, that was obviously something very intentional on your part to try to tap into the 5e market. Now, it might be early days still, but do you have any impression on whether you've had any success with that or not? Um, <clears throat> before the one or two fans that I still have uh, <laughs> call me a sellout, it, 90% of it is because I actually like quite a few things about 5th edition, uh, which we've talked about before. Yeah. So, um there's a lot of things that, that you know, are good about 5th edition, even though I'm not, I don't run it like by the book, rules is written very often. Um, I did when it came out to, to, you know, kick the tires and see what it was about. Uh, and then I kind of drifted back my old school roots, but I still have adopted a uh, few things here and there that are like 5th edition. And so, and I kind of married those together with my own house rules uh, hack of O5R instead of OSR. Uh, Crimson Dragon Slayer D20. I'll just plug that quick. Um, that's kind of the middle ground, and that's also an appendix in Chalt. Uh, and I think, I don't know. I don't have a lot of feedback on that. A lot of people that are in old school like Chalt, and a lot of people that like 5th edition have tried it and think that, yeah, you could use it with it and they're happy with it. But um, 
I'd say 80% of my audience is exclusively old school or OSR people. Um, there's not a lot of fifth edition people, I think, or purists of fifth edition playing Chalt or playing any of my material, which, you know, is mostly compatible. Um, but yeah. I, there's a lot of room. There's a lot of room for, uh, for people to go back and forth and switch and meld things together and, and do their own thing. I don't know if fifth edition people are doing that, but yeah, well, like, that was, like, that, was that was part of the intent with fifth edition when we were designing it was for it to be very, you know, modular, very able to be adapted and, and to get some of that OSR element that you have with where, you know, basically any two OSR books can be run together, right? Like you can, you can very easily adapt any OSR product uh, from one writer to the OSR product of another. Um, but the, I'm, I'm not too sure how many fifth edition gamers have actually been doing any of that, whether it's, you know, making their own mods to, to fifth edition or much less bringing in other products that aren't, you know, official D&D products and using those. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's I, hard to tell. I like fifth edition as a rule set quite a lot. I mean, I'd still want to fuck with it because I'm a game designer and that's <coughs> what we do. We fuck with rule systems. But I think you're welcome. <laughs> but I think that there is something else going on here. I mean, we've talked a little bit about how, um, like, Critical Role and so on, and this uh, gaming as a lifestyle. There seems to be a particular kind of cultural lens that's kind of going along with Fifth Edition that people want to play in a in a quite a specific cuddly fluffy non-osr sort of way with it unfortunately and i think that might be what's quashing interest in other things they they want to play in that very specific sort of style the um fantasy seattle i think you call it pundit yeah, right exactly <laughs> whereas i want to do something gritty and nasty <laughs> and horrible with it and Venger wants to do something weird and strange and, and out there with it and you want to do something well, authentic or explore different cultures in what you do I think we've got actually a fair, fair fairly good spread of approaches to gaming between the three of us and the, none of that particularly jibes with what the big audience wants <laughs> which is unfortunate yeah. but you know you've got to stay true to your creative urge I think well you know Here's here's the thing that I see is that um, the you know tied into this idea of D and D as a lifestyle, and you're right, it has the lifestyle has a particular culture, and it's very much a millennial type of culture. Let's put it right, fantasy Seattle. Uh, so I, I I wonder what it's going to be like in a few years when the Zoomers get a bit older. Uh, judging by how conservative some of these Zoomers are, and we'll we'll be talking more about that a little bit later in the show. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if like suddenly uh, Lion and Dragon and Dark Albion end up getting uh, more popular, in fact, with the next generation as they want to play like ultra-conservative, hardcore Catholic crusaders in a medieval authentic world based on European myth or something like that. You know? <laughs> but, um, but anyways, my wish, my wish fulfillment aside, um, the, the, the thing I see is that Eventually, you know, it tied in with with it being um, a culture and with it being a lifestyle. It, you can also say it's basically a fad, right? And and at some point, fads die. So 
the real question, the things we don't know are this. First, we don't know when the fad goes out of style, how many, what percentage of people that have adopted fifth edition will keep being into RPGs once it's no longer so popular in mainstream culture. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we can assume a lot of them won't, but we don't know exactly how many because it'll be very different if like 50% of them go away versus if 90% of them go away. Yeah. And the second thing that we we can't really tell for sure right now is just how many of the people playing 5th edition now are also looking at other games right now. Like people who started gaming with 5th edition, right? Like this is their first game. How many of them are already looking at other products and how many will look at other products once the fad dies down? Like I can say I've had a lot of people who've told me from my products, Dark Albion, Lion and Dragon and stuff like that, um, that have commented to me, uh, you know, I was gaming all kinds of different things. And, you know, then I got Lion and Dragon and this is like what I always wanted D&D to be. And it's awesome and whatever. Right? What I've never heard anyone say is I was playing fifth edition D&D. That's the first game I ever played. And then I found Lion and Dragon. And I think it's awesome. Right. Like that's that's I've. I've I, I I would like to think that maybe there's some people who who are relatively new to the hobby who started with fifth edition and then have discovered the OSR and been getting into it. I've been trying to promote the OSR in that way to try to draw in people that are into, into fifth edition. I think a lot of people are trying that in different ways, but I have no clue how successful that is. That's been, I suspect that right now it hasn't been very successful at all. Yeah. Maybe when the fad dies away, it'll be more successful. And the other thing, drawing to something you said at the beginning of your of your comments, Grim, is, uh, you know, there is a cycle that tends to happen with with RPGs. Uh, you pointed out that in the, in the in the dying days of second edition, when second edition was at its most decadent and useless, it created a, a, a space where a whole bunch of other games kind of appeared. And that's true, right? And then third edition came along and a lot of those games went bust because third edition was really good and solid and popular for a while. Mm. And third edition had its own version of the DMs Guild, which was the, you know, the D20 license. And we saw the same thing before, right? We saw that uh, there were at the peak of the D20 product boom, there were thousands and thousands of third party D20 games or products um, the vast majority of which were really awful and probably didn't sell very much at all. And nobody remembers, you know, there's a tiny handful of those that today we think of as really memorable. I can't right now think of a single DMs Guild product that has really broken through to being something really memorable that everybody talks about. I, I don't see that. I see on social media that people mainly are talking about the big, you know, Wizards products, the the, you know, the campaign books that come out and stuff like that. And, you know, the only other thing that is fifth edition that I've seen people talk about was the uh, Adventures in Middle Earth product, mm. which isn't the M's Guild product, right? And it was made by a big company and what have you. Um, so I suspect that the bust of DM's Guild will eventually be as bad or worse than the bust of the D20 movement. And now one thing that happened at the end of third edition, when, when fourth came along and suddenly you had a really shitty version of D&D again, um, is that this led to a space for the growth of the OSR, and the OSR became uh, more successful. 
With fifth edition, the OSR hasn't disappeared, but it's in some ways maybe it's not growing as as much or has is a bit less central than it was when the main edition of D and D was was utter crap, right? And so that back then there were people that might have been looking to get into D and D that would not go to fourth edition, but would end up getting into the OSR that today are getting into fifth edition at least for now. Yeah, so even. Uh, Talking about the culture, though, I mean, even the big sort of tentpole D and D products aren't aren't safe. The reason we've got this gypsy background on the on the stream and uh, why the why the thumbnail was from Snatch was because yet again the sort of gypsy stand-ins in Ravenloft are in people's sights. That's um, right, yeah, because it's racially insensitive and, and so on. I mean, yeah, to a degree. But Ravenloft was trying to emulate like the the old Universal Pictures version of Dracula or you know Bram Stoker's book. So if if you go back to the source, you know the the gypsies are seen as bad, wrong, you know, in the service of evil or, or whatever else, and that's what it's playing into. Not the 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 Roma as a as an actual people but how they were portrayed and used in these films and then using an analogue. And I mean, most fantasy societies in books are some kind of analogue to something from history. We don't tend to see, you know, Swedes or the Finns or anyone else getting up in arms over the depiction of of Vikings or Viking-derived societies. It's just, it seems to be a weird kind of, disconnect and failure to understand what's going on and to just assume bad faith immediately it's it's can unfortunate I, can i give some background to our viewers about the context of why this is relevant right now yeah uh in yeah on twitter the last day or so there's been a minor uh tweet storm from some sjw that has been uh complaining about the fact that in the ravenloft wizards product the vistani which are the the ravenloft equivalent of gypsies are uh, you know a racist stereotype and that are they're, they're terrible and inaccurate and they've been demanding that that wizards change ravenloft and hire someone who is a roma person to 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 reinvent the vistani as i don't know woke culture people or something like that um which yeah seems seems a bit silly in some way um, but yeah, it's it's another one of these uh, these moods that you know lately there hasn't been that much. This is really small fry in a way because uh, yeah. I, I've noticed that the last few months there hasn't been that much uh, crazy SJW stuff happening in the gaming world, and I don't know if that's a good sign or or, or whether they're just they you know they they've all been taking time off to complain about Thanksgiving and Christmas. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but yeah, there's been some guy that has been saying there and a lot of the SJWs supported him on this, that it's just terribly offensive, the Vistani and that this is racist and that it shouldn't be in D and D and some other people point out, yeah, but it's, it's bad because it's also an, in, an intrinsic part of Ravenloft. And I don't know if you can, if you can really have Ravenloft without them. So I'm not sure if even, you know, all of Ravenloft is problematic um, and of course, in the responses, you saw some people um, that were pointing out that they themselves were, you know, gypsy or of gypsy descent that were, you know, that they don't think it's really all that bad. And, and I, I actually saw in one of them, the person that did the OP, I think it was the person, maybe it was some other SJW, 
said, you shouldn't be using that word gypsy because it's an offensive word. And you should know that if you're, you know, and, and he's like, no, no, it isn't really like, you know, like we, 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 we kind of, you know, we don't really, we, we've repossessed that word and we don't think it's offensive, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean- now, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll admit that. Yeah. Obviously the Vistani are a stereotype and, and back in when Ravenloft was created, it was, it was very clearly not meant to be inspired by something like real history, but rather, to be inspired by the gothic novels of the 19th century, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein, all that stuff. And so it, it included this, this imagery and, and, you know, could you make them more rounded as a culture? Sure. Yeah. But I think also some D and D products have done some of that, you know, mm-hmm. maybe not to the extent that the SJWs would want, but, but, um, you know, they're, they're, I don't think they've always been presented as villains in Ravenloft. Um, and you know, if you're doing a different product, like in my, in my dark Albion setting and in line and dragon, I have an, a kind of equivalent to that, which are the Kimri travelers. And in that product, you know, I don't want to pretend I'm woke or something, but you know, I, I present the Kimri as sort of what, what, you know, the real perspective on these traveler people was in the, you know, in the, in the middle ages and the Renaissance, uh, which is that, you know, they were they were outsiders in the culture. They were pariahs that were nevertheless, you know, had a certain space and were sometimes utilized by by people at uh, different levels of the society, uh, but that were often the first people to be blamed when there was something wrong going on and that were suspected of, you know, witchcraft and stuff like that. And and I think that that makes some very interesting role-playing fodder. I think it's certainly much more interesting to have... A detailed sort of uh, authentic take on a traveler culture, um, uh, presenting them not as you know like heroic victims or as you know evil servants of the devil, but rather as a, a, a culture of their own that are outsiders in this particular world and and that can do things that are both good or bad, right? Yeah. M- so, M- Mr. Triceratops, to that necessarily, Mr. Triceratops in the chat makes it makes a good point. To make a culture more rounded, you do that at the game table as the games master. You know, a, a game source book only has so much space in it, so it gives you the, the stereotypes and the broad picture, and then you build on it. That, and I bet, I bet you a good amount of money that most of these people flying to the defense of, of gypsies, of, of the Roma, have never met one. Now, I, yeah. I, I live out in the sticks, right? And we do still get, we get traditional gypsies with their caravans coming through and selling heather in the high street in the local town. We get modern travelers, you know, crusty jugglers turning up and trashing fields and, you know, causing all kinds of problems. And we get the Irish travelers, the, the pikeys, we get them too. They're, they're fine people, but they have a very different set of, morals i guess a very different societal paradigm to those of us who live in one place all our lives and you know there is there is a clash and a a misunderstanding and so on and so even if you are doing the most woke representation possible i think you'd be doing a disservice to traveling peoples by not acknowledging that they're thought badly of by the the people who live around them wherever they happen to stop you know that's that's part of what it means and conflict is where story is so it only makes sense to include that makes sense to me but i'm crazy i guess i don't i don't know 
That's why you're on the show. Uh, yeah, yeah, because I'm evil. Uh, shall we move on? There was a PAX fuss, wasn't there? That's right. So we're, we're going to look at some more SJW ridiculousness. Um, I guess this weekend was PAX Unplugged or something like that. And um, there was a post that someone did on Twitter saying there are very few people of color on PAX, uh, at PAX. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm available to be a friend to any who are there, you know, like this real virtue signaling post. Um, and there was one guy who responded to that, um, who, what he said is, uh, well, you know, there is a diversity room or something, something along the lines. First of all, I kind of question why there needs to be a diversity room at a gaming con, but okay. Um, and so, uh, uh, an old friend of Venger and, and, and Grim Jim's here, Swordsfall, the guy that made the Afrofuturist RPG and, uh, and is, has then been pretty much dedicated to getting attention by calling everyone racist, uh, jumped on this topic. And it's funny because at the, at the very beginning, he jumped on and criticized the, uh, the guy who who offered to be a friend to the you know people of color at the gaming convention but then when he looked into this other guy the guy who made the comment about the diversity room was a guy named jonah falcon um he decided that that was a much better target and i'm pretty sure that the reason why he decided that is because jonah falcon has uh some high level followers on his twitter stream now this is a guy who's apparently into gaming but um, he's known as a kind of very minor celebrity in a, in a totally different context, which is that apparently, <laughs> now this is very funny, Jonah Falcon is known to have one of the largest penises in the world. And this particular, you know, freak quality of his physiognomy caused him to end up being like on the Howard Stern show. And, you know, he's followed by some celebrities and stuff like that. And uh, so obviously, uh, you know, uh, an SJW is is going to attack people in order to get as much possible attention as they can. So you want to go after the higher level target. And, uh, you know, I should point out that that Jonah Falcon has uh, noted that he himself is Latino and gay. Uh, and uh, this, of course, doesn't really stop anything. <laughs> you have the left eating itself, you know. Uh, where they've just been bombarding the guy up to the point that he's he's very clearly distressed because he didn't expect his comment about you know that there is a diversity lounge to to lead to hundreds of SJWs on Twitter um, accusing him of being some kind of white supremacist or something like that you know um, so it's quite a ridiculous story in every way you look at it. I'm gonna add him to my Twitter. Followers right now. <laughs> there you go. I mean, that's just a classic example, isn't it? So Pax got into trouble back in, what, 2010? With the whole Dick Wolves saga? Maybe it was a bit later, 2013? 2013, I think. Yeah, so um, they had their comic in which they were making fun of the fact that so many quests in, um, in MMORPGs are just nonsense so you have to all these people are being poorly treated in this mine you have to go and rescue five of them but it makes absolutely no impact on the game as a whole you don't get any bonuses for rescuing any more 
and they had this one sort of NPC pleading with the character, "Oh, please! Every every night we're we're raped to sleep by dick wolves," and the <laughs> fact that they they the fact, to try and you know get him to to rescue them, but the fact that they used rape as a as a joke already, you can see how that might uh, upset the usual suspects, even though this was back in 2013. And then at PAX, I guess 2013, uh, Gabe, the artist, drew a dick wolf as, uh, on the one of the panels um, up on a big screen. So that set everybody off. And in, uh, partly in response to that, they set up this idea of this diversity lounge, a, a sort of safe space that people could go to. So mm. step by step, they've kind of bent over for the for everyone um they've provided spaces they've undertaken to make the place more welcoming and so on and now the existence of the diversity lounge is taken as being bad and wrong even though it's something that was suggested to them by activists and which they took on board and put into effect how how do you please these people i just you can't and i mean the proof of it is these guys going after this this dude right that um it's just been unbelievably vicious right like the guy's only comment was there is a diversity lounge right and and here you have swordsfall saying everyone should know this guy is going to be at pax unplugged be careful watch out you know he's really dangerous and it's disappointing that pax is associating with this kind of guy i don't want my friends to be hurt right as if saying there's a diversity lounge means that this guy's going to like what kill people there you know like they're they're just nuts, right? And what? people, followers of this of, of Swordsfall have been apparently um, trolling him, posting on his on his Twitter feed, uh, trying to tell him to commit suicide. You know, I don't, <laughs> oh, the Swordsfall. His entire process of getting fame and attention seems to be sort of get, getting up on a, up on a ladder, step by step, of harassing people of slightly increased fame and influence or notoriety. You know, so he's worked his way through us. <laughs> and now he's on to celebrities. Nothing makes him happy. Anyone who is insufficiently woke, but still woke, gets his wrath. He's got rabid followers that he just unleashes on, on anybody and they harass people to the point where, you know, if, you've, if you do something that he doesn't like, he will go through your entire friends list on whatever social media you, you've got and tell everyone on that list that you're a Nazi or a fascist or a white supremacist or whatever else and start harassing them to, to unfollow you. It's, uh, and this works. <laughs> That's what really irks me, is that this seems to have worked to build him a profile. And it's just, it, it it's, it's, it's everything it's anyone ever accused Zach of being, right? And however questionable or not you might think that is, this guy is that dialed up <laughs> and gets away yeah. with it somehow. It, it uh -huh. aggravates the piss out of me. Well, hopefully, people see the see through that bullshit. <laughs> Maybe eventually. I think it's becoming more evident to people as time goes by. And I think that, that, that the SJWs can kind of tell they're starting to realize that, that nobody except each other is, is paying any attention to their bullshit. And this is why um, you see that they're now focusing on, on um, attacking other liberals, so to say, right? Because they, they, um, the, the audience of people who are willing to to consider their argument is diminishing. Yeah. So next week he's going to be uh, attacking um, Mick Mercer. 
Matt Mercer. Yeah, yeah well, probably. That's Go. a viable turn. Yeah, uh, I, I, um, this is a case of a, of a movement devouring itself, right? With the, which is which is inevitably what happens with these types of movements. Yeah, yeah. I think Mick Mercer edited or wrote the uh, Gothic Rock Bible or something. I don't know. It's from the UK. I don't know, Grim, if you've ever heard of it, but no, I would look it up. Well, but my keyboard Mike is really Mercer, Okay, though. What's that? That Mercer isn't from the UK. Hmm. No, not yeah, not that, not Matt Mercer. Oh, different Mercer. Whoever I thought I was talking about, uh, Mick Mercer. Oh, okay. Oh yeah, wrong. Let me see if I can type really, really quietly here. Okay, Mick Mercer. Stupid expensive keyboard. Oh, okay. Yeah, all you ever wanted to know, but we're too gormless to ask. About, <laughs> about the gospel the cover. Theme. Yeah. Maybe because we were talking about punk, and I don't know. Yeah, set something off. <laughs> all right. And your Graham just, like, sent me back to 1993. <laughs> Benzer, ben, Benzer is here having his own program, right? Like, the two are... <laughs> I'm having a gothic rock flashback. No, it's the He's magic like, of storytelling. Simpson inventing the movie plot in his own mind, right? Like, well, wait a minute. The police commissioner was in it all along, and it's like, what? There's no police commissioner here. You know, I don't know what's happening now. Has Swordsfall actually produced anything yet, or is it all? I don't know if that Afrofuturism RPG of his came out or not, but I mean, like, one way or the other. He's he's never going to make any inroads, right? Like this is this is something that will only appeal to the tiny clique of people who are you know the virtue signalers, right? He's going to be stuck there, um, making you know ma mainly being famous for his tweets more than anything else for being a gigantic asshole. <laughs> really, he's got all sorts of products, but I'm not seeing much in the way of books here. Uh, a graphic novel, a bunch of stickers, a tarot deck. Hats, shirts, prints. Any books? Any books. Let's have a look. Books. <laughs> uh, What's our audience saying? Art if book, we have any left. Art book, graphic novel, uh, a novel, uh, a digital book about creatures. I don't know if that's actually got any role playing content in it. Pantheons. Has he actually done any gaming work? This all just no idea, <laughs> and it's clearly irrelevant to to both him, his audience, and the rest of us. <laughs> that, I, That's not what people follow him for. Yeah, I mean, there's a wiki with some stuff on this. Yeah, hey, I can see myself. What's especially right. aggravating to, <laughs> is that I was actually fairly supportive of the idea of this pro project to start with different aesthetic and everything. I think he even retweeted some of the early promo stuff. And to find out he's just a gaping fistula of a human being. Just... I feel dirty. <laughs> well, it happens sometimes. Yeah. Or if you're if you're Jim Raggy, it happens almost constantly, right? <laughs> Where you're back to the wrong horse. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Ugh. I'm surprised you're still with us, Benjo. How come you haven't been dragged away to bed yet? Uh, I still have seven minutes. Oh, All right. Okay. Are you on my so, wife's side now? <laughs> um, there's no good we, answer to that. Move on there? to our, our last planned topic for the evening, then. Yeah. 
while we right. still have him. Okay. So um, the last thing we're going to talk about wasn't isn't really an RPG subject, but uh, I, I I guess Grim is demanding certain amount of equal time, and uh, you know, on account of uh, on this program, we very routinely end up mocking the the far left so to say which is really to say these days in a lot of places the mainstream left the the okay. left of corbyn and the democratic party nowadays but uh uh the the once in a while you get some ridiculous shit from the extreme right as well and lately there's been quite a lot of that in that there's this movement of of very um, extremist elements in the right that are, you know, a very small group, but that, as usual, uh, shout above their weight. And then it, it, with the right, the problem is also that they get a lot of media attention because the media is desperate to claim that this is like an important part of the right when really it isn't. But they love to give, you know, like Richard Spencer, for example, is a guy that the only reason anyone knows his name is because CNN and MSNBC don't shut up about him because they want to try to suggest that the rest of the Republican Party is has anything to do with him when they don't. But anyway, these guys are, you know, they're known as the Groypers and uh, they're, they've been, they, they came to fame a few weeks back when they uh, basically trolled an event of Turning Point USA. Turning Point USA is a is a um, university-based conservative movement that tries to, you know, change the culture in the universities towards, you know, being being right-wing, right? To, to promote um, conservative values, they're pro-Trump and all that. And uh, at one of these events, Charlie Kirk, who is one of the, uh, the leaders of the TPUSA movement, got just massively trolled in the Q&A by, by uh, a whole slew of these, these Groyper guys that were asking some questions that he wasn't capable or ready to answer uh, with some very um, kind of uh, anti-Semitic overtones and overtones of, uh, you know, um, extreme racism, so to say, and... Uh, and and he was taken by surprise, basically. And then they did the same thing to Donald Trump Jr., who came out with a, a, his own book. Donald Trump Jr., by the way, if you are a conservative, you really want to add him to your Twitter. His his Twitter feed is even better than his dad's. You know, the guy is is a complete badass, and uh, I quite enjoy his Twitter feed. And I'm sure his book is very good, though I haven't been able to get it yet. Um, but they they went to one of his book signing events and did the same thing to him. And um, so these guys are, you know, they're anti-Israel. They're opposed to to funding for Israel. They're um, they're opposed to all immigration, legal or illegal, of any kind. Right? They've they've explicitly, you know, some of their their thought leaders have explicitly pointed out that they are uh, basically opposed to democracy. They don't want a democracy. They want a kind of theocratic fascist state. And um, they they want to impose strict moral rules on the rest of society. And these last few days, they've been spamming the hell out of, um, well, first it was Gab, which is already a very kind of right-wing uh, social media site. But then it's spilled over into Twitter and probably a few other areas where they've been very vociferously campaigning to argue that all pornography should be illegalized, right? That, that 
um, basically uh, porn should be completely forbidden, which is you know, completely in line with what they think and not really in line with what most other people on the right think these days. <laughs> so there we are. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you had anything to add about that, Grim, because you were the one that wanted the topic brought yeah, up. It's, um, I've been seeing this brewing for a while and a lot of conservative commentators and new sites like Gab and so on really kind of latched on to the free speech counter movement that sprang up against social justice types. And... Um, you know, they sold themselves as being free speech platforms and free speech champions and all the rest of it. And we're seeing the mask slip a bit, you know? Um, so, yeah, fairly big YouTube commentators like uh, Lauren Chen, I think, has come out against porn and against sex workers. And Gab, obviously, has gone off on this big huge rant against porn and quite hilariously has been re referring to um porn is the new drug which is a which is a mormon anti-porn <laughs> campaign which has zero relation to reality and we've spent so long fighting the left or people who at least call themselves left left wing i think we might find ourselves reluctant or find it hard to resist similar censorship and authoritarianism coming from the right this time. So I guess this is kind of kind of a call to arms to, to be consistent. If if we're for free speech, if we're for free expression, it has to be consistent. Venger, do you want to say anything about this before your, your wife makes yeah, you go to bed? You're you're a filthy degenerate like me, so uh, sure. No, he's not. He's the model. He's the model of what these guys want. He's he's a, a white guy who is married and has a ridiculous number of kids. You know. <laughs> yes. Can you see that meme? I don't know. It's probably backwards or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the first one I've seen that meme a lot in different, you know, categories or whatever, and I'm pretty sure the first picture is from like. One of those housewife shows, and then I don't know where the cat's from. Is that also from a like Housewives of Beverly Hills, have... whatever? I don't know. That's just a footnote. If someone watching knows anything about that, <laughs> that meme, I would I'd be very curious about the origins. Anyway, um, oh, we could have a whole whole show about religion. Um, I'm mellowing. Now that I'm 45 and married to a somewhat Catholic uh, wife, and I have five kids who we try to instill. Ah, uh, that explains the number of kids. Yeah, we try to, well, <laughs> both have a decent number of family, and then she gets pregnant very easily and uh catholicism because every sperm is sacred <laughs> yeah we had, we had an oops with twins and you know that just bumped us from three to in, immediately to five and so that's kind of crazy um <laughs> i don't know I, i'm never gonna be okay with um getting rid of porn um or like uh you know like I'm, the, I'm, you know, I can't understand the anti-porn people. I mean, if you don't like it, 
don't watch it, I guess. It's not like you're inundated with pornography. I mean, I guess if you lived in downtown New York in the 70s or early 80s, like right next to 42nd Street, and it was all just like porn theaters and like hookers. And, you know, then you maybe be irritated or you at least have a point. You either could be desensitized or overstimulated or it brings about a bad element. You know, you got a lot of, I don't know, winos and crime and other degeneracy. But it's pretty much under control now. I mean, if people want to like, watch some porn on their on their laptop or something like in the privacy of their own home i don't know one percent of political faction thinks that that's that's the hill they want to die on you know once you're dead nobody will mourn you and we'll just go on the rest of our lives so yeah it's just what what What's happening, though, is that I think those of us who are for free speech, free expression, don't have an issue with with porn. We're now caught in a pincer movement. <laughs> you know, one side wants to wants to wrap their authoritarianism in feminism, and the other side wants to wrap their authoritarianism in think of the children, and and you just get caught in the middle. I mean, we we actually had that happen here in the UK. Fortunately, the the um, the anti-porn firewall thing has kind of fallen away, at least for now, because it's just impractical to implement. But that was David Cameron's Conservative Party and Gail Dines's feminist anti-porn movement coming together to try and censor the internet. And, well, just, just today, I think, a story broke that Twitter's going to start clamping down on not-safe-for-work content, which means you know a lot of sex workers in the in the adult industry so pornography sense are going to end up cut out of that platform they've already lost tumblr you know and this is the reason they go to twitter this this is this is people i know that i'm friends with anna anna cherry i don't know if you guys know her she does a a a naked dnd thing which you should all check out she's a good friend of mine i don't want to see her income get destroyed i don't want to see other people effectively put out on the street because they can't get their get their content out there to people You've you should got, really send me a link to that. I'll, I'll find it for you later. Um, okay. You know this this impact directly impacts people's lives, and you already have all the tools you need to avoid porn if you don't want to see it. <laughs> so, I I, just, I don't understand this attitude. And the trouble is, if we have both left and right wanting to censor sexual expression, what chance have we got? <laughs> it's. It, uh, I don't know. Well. Let me start by pointing out again the the one issue with this kind of um, supposed uh, dichotomy, which is that the feminists in the left wing have enormous influence, right? The feminists and the SJWs have tremendous influence, tremendous power. They have um, a lot of the control of the culture. The Groypers have zero influence or control of the culture, right? And they've they've managed in their trolling to make an enemy of the Trump family, which they supposedly support, right? Though no one understands quite why, because they say they're they're against legal immigration and they're against Israel, and you know the Donald Trump and his family are in favor of legal immigration and in favor of Israel. But there we are. Um, so it's still not a both sides kind of issue, right? Because the yeah. one one side of the political spectrum has embraced 
their insane fanatics and is promoting them, right? To the point that now in the UK, where you're from, Grim, the most important left-wing party has wholeheartedly embraced rampant and virulent anti-Semitism to the point that the chief rabbi of, of London had to basically make yeah. a statement against the Labour Party. Okay, um, I'm not a huge fan of Jeremy Corbyn, but I would take some issue with that, but it would take a whole thing. Basically, they're, they're classing criticism of, of Israel in with anti-Semitism, which is a bit dodgy, but then some people do hide their anti-Semitism within that. And the chief rabbi is a huge donator and supporter to the Conservative Party, so he may not be entirely unbiased, but there is a problem with anti-Semitism uh, in the Labour movement. It's just I don't think it's quite as bad as they're saying, though it's still pretty fucking bad. And that's because yeah, there's this so con bad. there's this conflation of um, the the idea of the rich fat cat capitalist and the rich fat cat Jew on the left, unfortunately. And um, yeah, it gives me pause. I think it should give anyone pause, but um, the conservatives are still worse because they hate everybody, not just Jews. Yeah, well, American. I think well, no, conservative no, no, party that's, in that's the UK, the Tories. Well. I, sh I should clarify, not the, conservatives the, the, the in Tories, general. The Tories have a fairly multicultural bunch in, in their in their uh, <laughs> in their tent, right? Whereas the Labour Party, what what their position basically amounts to is that they're totally fine with a Jewish person being in the Labour Party as long as that Jewish person denounces Israel and is in favor of Hamas, right? Which is like. <laughs> The most ridiculous thing you could imagine, right? We'll it's end basically up down a rabbit like, hole if I argue too much. <laughs> yeah, all right. Okay. So let's let's leave that for the moment. So this is I've already pointed out in the, the sense in which this is not the same in both sides. But uh, now I will point out the thing that is worrying about these these groupers, which is that their demographic skews extremely young, right? Like their chief um kind of figurehead right now is a guy named nick fuentes ironically a mixed race latino like myself um <laughs> who, who has also i very ironically advocated against mixed marriages right so technically he thinks he shouldn't exist but <laughs> there we are um Party. That's and uh yeah and and he's only like 24 i think or 26 or so he's really young and the, a lot of the people that are in this movement are really, really young, right? Like they're guys in their in their teens or very early twenties, mostly wait men. Sorry, just wait till they get married. Porn is going to be their best friend in like five years. <laughs> I don't know if you want your wife hearing that, but okay. Yeah, she's probably got a voodoo doll already stabbing me. <laughs> Two years, I, I gotta go. All right, <laughs> take that time. care. Take care. I'll pause my rant to say, uh, remember, viewers, that if you want Venture to be able to stay up later, uh, you should uh, check out our Patreon. Give us some some Patreon dollars and uh, you should, uh, uh, you know, share the videos, subscribe, help inappropriate characters get bigger so that then Venture's wife will let him stay up another 15 minutes or so. Um, yeah, for, <laughs> so yeah. for every $20 uh, more that we get on Patreon a month. I get to stay up another five minutes. There you go. You've heard <laughs> so it right here. Such a worthy cause that I can't believe it. Oh, also, before I go, uh, I've got a new Kickstarter, Chult, 
Fuchsia Malaise is the name. Um, and uh, hopefully you back that because it's a follow-up to the original Chult. And uh, it's going to be fucking awesome. Okay. Good night, guys. Thanks. Good show. Take care. So, so I was saying, you know, that these guys are um, the, the grapers tend to skew very, very young. And uh, so that is a problem right now. I would say when you look at what has generated this, I think that that uh, it is not unfair of me to put a lot of the blame on this on the establishment left. Because what you had was a, a generation, you know, about five years ago of very libertarian oriented um, right wing celebrities, so to say, uh, that were people that were advocating for, you know, basically what the Trumpian movement is really about, which is this kind of um, civic nationalism that was not racist at all, that was in favor of you know, saying basically race is not relevant. It doesn't really matter. You know, your sexuality doesn't really matter. What matters is your values. It matters if you if you believe in America, if you're patriotic. Um, what matters is that you that you share Western ideals, and that we we don't you know we don't believe in in a government that gets to censor you in any sense, whether it's your political ideas or whether it's you know how you entertain yourself. Um, and the response from the big media companies everywhere from, you know, old media like CNN all the way down to social media like Google and Twitter and Facebook was to clamp down on these people, to censor them, to deplatform them, to vilify them as Nazis, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so this opened a door for a much more extreme group of bad actors to come in and and um, draw in the, the new, the upcoming generation into their ideas, you know, because if, I mean, if all, if everybody on the right is a white supremacist, then that helps to legitimize white supremacy. And that's a big, big problem, right? So I'm trying to silence the bleeping from my computer, which is apparently annoying people. Uh, oh. Where is it? <laughs> so well, this so yeah i personally think that the the censorship of the left has been part of what's contributed to the the radicalism of the right that and as i mentioned before the fact that the left loves to point out these extremists and treat them as if they had as much influence over the right as their own extremists have over the left which of course they'll never criticize right like to to cnn antifa are heroes right they're they're yeah. perfectly fine yeah, it's, there's always there's always a reaction when something like this happens and it's kind of natural and predictable but it's just i i guess the the pseudo left has, has pushed things way too far for ordinary people to accept and then so as a result of that a lot of stuff has been conflated together and so yeah. you know they're reacting to perhaps a push too far by some of the trans activists and so on and then they're folding their hatred of pornography and sexual expression and so on into the same thing i think it all kind of comes together but the, the, you're right that there's still an imbalance of power in that the social justice types have a lot of well they don't have a lot of hard political power but they have a lot of soft power and a lot of power in education and and so on that's that's true but what concerns me 
is that these people have been part of the resistance to that, whether you love them or not. And with them no longer helping resist, there's less opposition. And that's how things like Twitter now deciding to crack down on, on NSFW content, you know, that's how they get away with it. That's yeah, I agree. I agree that it's a problem. And I mean, the interesting thing is that just like your buddy Swordsfall is mostly going after moderate liberals, you know, people that aren't as extreme as he is, these gripers, they they don't they don't go around trolling, you know, left with they're not they're not trolling MSNBC, they're not trolling the young Turks, they're not trolling, you know, the um the the uh, Vox or or anything like that. They're they're trolling Turning Point USA. They're yeah. trolling Donald Trump Jr. Right, and so they're they're they know very much. That at least their leaders know very much that that their way to get popularity is is by attacking the right, the actual libertarian right, and uh, and then getting attention from mainstream media because of that. Right, like so if they were attacking. The um, if they were attacking Antifa the way, you know, certain uh, earlier conservative movements were, then the left would would instantly have give them a different kind of attention than if the left can say, oh, look, look, these are the extremists on the right and they're taking over the right or something like that, which they're not. But but that's the the image that they're going to try to present. There's a tie in to the anti-Semitism as well, because there's an old um, trope slash conspiracy theory that. Majus are using pornography in order to undermine the West or something. I, I've been running into that on and off for years. Yeah, and that it, certainly seems to be guys, a thread in this. Yeah, absolutely. With these guys, it all comes down to anti-Semitism, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, what I like to do when I, because ironically, these last two months or so, I've been spending more of my time on social media getting into fights with Groypers than I have been getting into fights with, with SJWs, right? Yeah, uh, I've, so I've noticed that up. same trend through the last last few months. I've been butting heads with these kind of people more often. Yeah, it's been taking up a lot of my time, which I don't care for. But um, so, you know, what I like to do is call them Islamists because <laughs> basically they are, right? They're exactly yeah. the same. They want a non-democratic theocracy. They want they, they don't want women doing whatever they like with their bodies, um, they they want a highly restrictive culture being enforced by a big government, and they hate Jews. <laughs> so, like, in what way are they different from Islamists? Right? They're not yeah. representatives. They like to try to present themselves as being champions of Western civilization. They're not. The people that are champions of Western civilization are people that champion the Enlightenment ideals that made the West the greatest civilization in human history and made it different from every other civilization in human history. These guys hate the Enlightenment. They want to go back to a medieval West that was no better or worse than any of the other shitholes. You know, it was it was yeah. a tribalist um, place of, of, of violence, intolerance and, and uh, obscurantism, yeah. right? And I think they um, miss a, a really important key factor in what has made many civilizations great. If you look back to ancient Rome, it was essentially multi- multicultural. It allowed people of different ideas and, and thought to come together, and that's what helped make it such a grand civilization. And the Islamic yes. Golden Age, that was a time when Islam was tolerant, 
and would allow different yeah. people with different ideas to come together and it flowered and then it fell away when they became more strict okay yes but not in the same sense that we see in multiculturalism no, no. you know promoted by frau merkel and company right or by the the democrats or you know what you see with with uh, your mayor khan there in london who you know when an islamist murders three people says diversity is our strength as his result right uh, to, yeah, this is the big difference to the, an extent the you, can, you can take anything too far obviously <laughs> well no but it's not too far it's a different type of mm. multiculturalism and this is the difference i'm going to explain it in the roman empire the great innovation of the roman empire was that being roman wasn't defined as where you were born or what was in your blood. Being Roman was defined by citizenship, right? It was the yeah. birth of civic nationalism as a concept, right? So to be Roman, you had to to believe in Rome as a as a concept, you had to believe in the Roman values as an idea, and you had to um as, aspire to be a, a citizen of Rome. And that was the genius of it. That was what made them different say than the greeks for example even who had some good things going for them too but didn't have that going for them mm. and, and this um the, one of the things that these gripers try to do is that they make very legitimate criticisms of the whole you know diversity is our strength leftist concept which which they define as being a society where you can be full of different groups of people that don't, don't Ooh, cut out have I lost you? Studies have shown that, in fact, it doesn't. Right? In fact, many of them hate each other. But multiculturalism tends to isolate people. It tends to, to have people shut in in their communities. It creates general distrust that increases in any society that's very harmful. And, and the reason for that isn't because you have, you know, black people and white people in the same neighborhood. It's because you have people that don't believe in anything in common in the same neighborhood. Yeah, right? in inspiration so, is is important, I think, and sh and shared. That's values. right. The, I mean, the British em the British Empire used to be quite good at that. That's right. That the sense idea of being an imperial citizen. Yeah. Yeah, it has to be that you you have um, you create a a nationalism of values, right? A nationalism that that believes in the same that and holds dear the same truths as as a as a culture yeah and 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 that can therefore you can have people that have all kinds of of different cultural differences that eat different foods that have different religions that have uh different dances and have different you know uh, holidays and whatever but that they uh that they have the same um the same uh, allegiance to democratic concepts, the same allegiance to individual liberties, yeah. the same allegiance to there's an overarching um, set of ideals yeah. or something that's that exists slightly higher than the than the other values. I mean, Rome also allowed people to keep sort of their more sort of local identities as well, and they had the brilliant trick of taking soldiers from one area of the empire and putting them on the other side of the empire so they couldn't be involved in uprisings and so on. Um, I'm no fan of Islam, Vorpal Anvil, but the point is that when it was at its at its height, when it was at its best, when it was making scientific achievements and so on, that was the time in which they were tolerant. That that's that's my sole point <laughs> there. I think you're you're thinking I'm speaking highly of Islam when I'm when I'm not. No, no. I didn't want to call I was more concerned about your your 
when when you were describing multiculturalism and, and you brought in the Romans yeah, it's, um... as an example. But they're really, you know, the, 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 I mean, there's no question that there was a kind of an Islamic golden age and that in that golden age, you had a society that had a, um, a similar type of not just tolerance, but they had an open mindedness uh, of, of ideas. Right. And the moment yeah. that golden age collapsed was um, sometime around the 13th century, you know, basically it's after Al- the long Al-Ghazali, came, wasn't it? I think yeah where they yeah. where they fell backwards into this idea of um of of embracing this tribal traditionalism right and yeah. similar things happened in China too usually after, I I made a point once I did an article about this that uh, you know when the when Genghis Khan rolled through most of the the, the known world uh he destroyed the Song dynasty in China he destroyed the Islamic uh culture in the Middle East and but he didn't get all the way into Europe, and that was one of the big differences because after the Mongols, both the Chinese and the Arab world retreated into this kind of everything that was in the past was better, and we don't want anything new sort of attitude, right? Yeah. And and unfortunately, this is this is the risk that happens um, when a society abandons open mindedness, mm-hmm. and and this is why. People that are opposed to open mindedness are are so, whether they're from the left or the right. Yeah. To to round this off and kind of bring it back to gaming, and then I'm going to have to go to bed, so we're going to going to have to wrap up. Um, yeah, open mindedness and and tolerance. That's what's missing, and that's part of what's a big threat to gaming. This is a creative enterprise, and you have to have that space to explore ideas to touch upon taboos to investigate to explore to play with stereotypes and and difficult ideas and conflict in order to make games and to make them effective and to make them engaging and interesting and we've been essentially (laughs) oppressed by the left for a long time and now i'm worried that this other side is is creeping in as as well and um Fighting on two fronts is rarely a good idea. Yeah, though I, I think that the guys on the right are a lot less skilled at it than the guys on the left, right? The guys on the left have been working on this since the 1950s, since the Frankfurt yeah. School, you know, and Gramscian yeah. Socialism. So they've uh, I, got a, I, they're a lot better at it. Yeah, I, I agree. I just... I want to enter that note of caution into the records. Well, the, the thing is, people on the right have to be able to answer these guys. One of the things that made them suddenly so so noticeable is that when they ambushed Charlie Kirk and and Turning Point USA, they asked him questions that he should have been able to respond to, and instead he didn't. He just fell back. He was taken by surprise. He fell back on you know meaningless catchphrases and and they got him they absolutely got him right but if if somebody who had already had you know some kind of contextual experience of dealing with these guys that had been confronted with the same questions their questions were very easy to rebut from a conservative point of view it's just that they they picked the right target i guess i don't know have you, have you got anything to pimp before we log out i do but before i get into the pimping i just i can't avoid this this is the 9th of december and we're probably not going to have another uh inappropriate characters until after this happens you're about to have an election over there and i i can't help but yes. but 
you know, dig the <laughs> dig a bit of salt into the wound that from what I've been seeing of the electoral projections of the maps there, you're in for an ocean of Tory blue, aren't you? Well, it's uh, it's a really, really unpredictable political landscape at the moment. Um, Labour. Do you are, honestly think that 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 uh, Boris isn't going to get a majority government? I think it's gonna, it's fifty fifty whether he's going to get a majority or whether it's going to be pretty much where we are now uh, with, a, with a hung parliament. Yeah, record <laughs> numbers of people have indicated that they're going to vote tactically. That's enough to sway somewhere between thirty and sixty seats. Um, I mean, I studied politics. Um, yeah, I, I have accreditations in it. Uh, I studied history. I have accreditations in that. I'm keen on politics. I follow it a lot. And ever since Brexit, nothing has been predictable uh, about British politics. Things that should have ended Johnson's career haven't landed. Um, the When Theresa May had her sort of snap election, it looked like the Tories were going to get a larger majority. Didn't happen. Nothing, nothing is predictable at all. I, if if you push me, I will say I think the Tories will get a narrow majority, but it could be a big one. It just depends how things fall on the day. I think it's more likely to end up with another hung parliament, and then it's anybody's guess what the fuck is going to happen. Well, I'm betting that that the Tories will get a solid majority. Maybe not a a, a landslide majority, but maybe. But uh, I think those are your options, and Brexit mm. will happen. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, first past the post also tends to distort things. I, I can't remember the last time we had an actual government that a majority of people voted for. <laughs> but, I think that I think that really there's two things you can blame this on, and one is that that um, the uh, blatant attempts to delay an election by the by the anti-Brexit group um, really ended up looking bad. Yeah. And and second and probably even bigger is the fact that Corbyn is the leader of the Labour Party and and he's just <laughs> you yeah. know there there are, there are seats that have never voted anything but Labour for eighty years that might not go Labour this yeah, time. It's yeah. quite it's, it's a little bit odd because he's very old school Labour and when he did win I thought oh here's a guy who he he indicates a, a necessary shift back to the left from the Blair years but he's gone too far. And somehow he's disconnected even from those traditional Labour seats. I think it's because he's London, urban, and he's like Bernie Sanders in the States, right? He's taken on some of the the, the pseudo-left woke stuff, unfortunately. Yeah, well, even though for in, example, his, it, in his bones, Cor he's old school Labour, but still. Yeah, I mean, Corbyn was a guy who for decades was anti-EU and, and then suddenly became pro-remain because his party demanded it you know? yeah and now he's neutral it's the, this whole thing is an enormous clusterfuck and um i wish the goblins would come and take me away right now <laughs> all right so anyways as far as pimping you know right now i'm i'm um i've got this product that's about to come out that's called the uh the osr uh companion which is a collection of, of uh, medieval authentic companion which is a, a collection of of stuff from rpg pundit presents that it's going to be a huge 266 page source book of um you know medieval authentic stuff that you can put into any osr game but i mean it's also especially good for people that like lion and dragon 
And uh, it's going to be a great product, but unfortunately right now it's in development hell because there's issues. Uh, we, we, we can't identify whether the fault lies with DTRPG or with Lightning Source or with both or whatever, but there's been ridiculous delays. It was supposed to come out last month and it's, it's not right now. We still don't know exactly when it's coming out, but it'll come out soon. Uh, also because I changed publishers there, there haven't been any new RPG pundit presents issues out, but there is going to be some new ones coming fairly soon. Uh, uh, including uh, about lion and dragon sci-fi. Yeah. The uh, RPG pundit presents number 100 will eventually come out. It's, it's coming, you know, we're, we're going to start releasing some more uh, pundit presents and number 100 will be a space opera OSR mini game, which will basically be an adaptation of lion and dragon rules for playing space opera sci-fi. Cool. So I guess for the moment, just keep your eyes open, guys. And if you if you do want to give me a tip, you know, um, aside from, you know, the Patreon we have here or the Patreon I have on my channel, uh, you can pick up any of the current RPG Pundit Presents issues. There's like 96 of them. So if you haven't taken a look at all of them, take a look because there's going to be stuff you're going to like there that you can use. There's stuff that's from the gonzo weird fantasy end of the, the spectrum. And there's stuff that's like medieval authentic fantasy there's adventures and all kinds of other things that you can use for whatever game you like and uh they're low-cost pdfs it's kind of like sending me a tip but you also get something back for for your money so uh yeah that's all i have to promote for the moment but pretty soon you'll be seeing the uh osr medieval authentic companion and some new issues of rpg pundit presents cool um, I'm getting print proofs of our election party party game that I did with Rachel Haywire. Should be arriving tomorrow. I'll probably do a video on that if people want to check out my channel, postmortem video tomorrow. Uh, late, <laughs> there should be something there. Um, otherwise, uh, well, because I get ill, um, unfortunately. I'm I'm trying to rein myself in and not overpromise stuff, so I'm not going to promise too much about uh, about what's what's coming up because I don't know how well I'm going to be, and Christmas is always disrupted. So instead, I'll use this time. Um, I'm running a crowdfunder for charity for a friend of mine, uh, Jamie, who is an avid gamer. Um, disabled they just recently found out that they had been misdiagnosed for over 10 years um, and unfortunately the treatment they were getting for what they were supposed to have made the condition that they actually have which is MS and something else worse so we've been crowdfunding we've got enough to get them um, an active wheelchair but we would like to get some more money in to help pay down some of the debts that they've incurred while they've been disabled and in trouble for for so many years you can find that on justgiving.com slash crowdfunding slash jamie's awesome wheelchair which i know is a really unwieldy url but if you check out my social media you should be able to find a link there so we're, we're just trying to raise a bit more money to pay down some of their debts so that month to month they're a bit better off um and george or georg mir the guy who made the mictim game uh which is it's got a hamster rpg he's probably got a lot of red red flag terms to a lot of you on his profile but he's a decent dude um he's having a hard time so if you can find him on social media he's trying to raise some cash by selling 
uh, Mictim, which is his hamstery game. So if you feel like helping out either of those people, that's what I appreciate happening. Oh, someone's asking about my cat. Uh, yes, Charlie's okay. Um, his leg's still broken and gimpy, but it's it's healed, but it's healed wonky. But there's nothing we can really do about that. But he seems he seems happy, purry, eating, everything. He's he's fine. Thank you so much to everyone who donated to, to help him out. Because that cat means the world to me. <laughs> well, as a, as a cat owner myself, I can sympathize. <laughs> and those, those do sound like some very good causes, Grim. So check it out, guys. Yeah. Uh, Joe, message me privately and I'll uh, tell you what's going on with that other stuff. But we really should call it a night. I need to get some sleep before, <laughs> before tomorrow. All right. Um, goodbye, everyone. All right, everyone. Take care. We'll see you next time. Currently smoking uh, Brigham Anniversary Pipe plus uh, Peterson's uh, Wild Atlantic. Cool. Currently wearing beard oil. <laughs> Later, everyone.